Welcome to the REORG Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy, and discussions and issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Lucio Fijo Lopez, the founding partner of Fijo Lopez Avogados, a premier corporate law firm that specializes in capital markets, M&A, trade finance, project finance, and corporate governance, talks with Reorg's Maria Breu about the opportunities awaiting foreign investors in Brazil's distressed debt market, and highlights why the current market conditions present an optimal moment for investment. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, February 12th. Welcome back to another episode of the Rear Primary View podcast. I'm Maria Breu, a reporter in the Latin Distress Dead team, and I'm pleased to have Lucio Feijó López as our guest. Lucio Feijó López is the founding partner of Feijó López Advogados, a premier corporate law firm that advises Brazilian and foreign companies, financial institutions, funds, and investors in areas such as capital markets, mergers and acquisitions, trade finance, project finance, and corporate governance. In today's episode, Lucio sheds light on the unique opportunities in Brazil emphasizing the advantageous environment for distressed and special situations investments. We will explore the nuances of investing in Brazil, the challenges faced, and the potential rewards that lie ahead. Welcome, Lucio. Glad to have you here. Maria, thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, we're excited to to look into this topic with you. Um, So let's dive in. So considering uh, recent economic shifts and interest rate changes in Brazil. Why is this a favorable time for foreign investors to explore distressed debt assets in the country? Uh, I always, when I talked, uh, when I talked to uh, foreign investors that are looking to Brazil, uh, at least uh, recently, uh, over the past one or two years, I say that this is the best time to invest in distressed assets in Brazil. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Brazil is the ninth economy in the world. Uh, in the world, is it represents fifty percent of Latin's GDP. Uh, it is an agribusiness powerhouse, which provides an inflow of uh, hard currency into the country and uh, provides a stability uh, for the whole economy, um, and has a solid banking system which is also good for the inflow and outflow of, of funds. And it's a big market. It's a, uh, over 200 million uh, in population. So as, as a, in summary, the country um, is, is, is a big market is, uh, and the, it constitutes a relevant market for foreign investors. Last year, um, 2023, we had direct investments into the country of over 60 billion US dollars. And I tell you uh, that it is the best time because there has been over the past uh, five, six or seven years, some uh, major improvements in the overall environment of the country, like labor reforms, major labor reforms uh, in 2016, some 
privatizations at federal level and state level since uh, over the past five to seven years. Improvements in financial and capital markets vehicles like funds, um, um, securities, improvements, that's big, uh, uh, important parts for, uh, for investors in distress of improvement in uh, collateral instruments. And also uh, important to the industry, which is digital, uh, digitalization. So Brazil is generally an early adopter of um, the digital movement. So now we have uh, most of the key um, uh, the key uh, industries um, um, dealing with uh, electronic documents, electronic signatures. Um, so that's facilitate doing business in Brazil. Interesting. So what is the current size of the distress debt market in Brazil currently? And how does it compare to the high yield market? And also wanted to know if any local banks have been willing to assign credit recently. The Brazilian distressed uh, market size, it is over 100 billion US dollars. It might be over 200 or 300 billion US dollars, but uh, the, the lower estimates, they go above 100 billion. And it's a market uh, that exists already over a decade, um, since I think picking up since 2010, after uh, the financial crisis in the US that uh, had some effects in Brazil. And, uh, but the, uh, we, we have seen uh, a, a picking up in, in, the, in, the, um, in the interest of uh, local and foreign investors over the past five years. So there has been a massive uh, flow of, of local and foreign investor, foreign investors' money into uh, distressed um, assets and special situations assets over the past uh, uh, five years. And uh, Brazilian banks, which are very solid, uh, especially the five big ones, they are now used to sell uh, some of their portfolios uh, in the market, what to then bring um, uh, now, uh, regularly to the market new assets, uh, particularly non-performing uh, uh, non loans. With respect to the high-wield uh, bonds, um, Brazil is known uh, to have one of the highest, if not the highest, interest rate in the world, both for consumer and for corporate. So the high-wield uh, uh, loans, they are a big part of um, the um, banks, local banks, and local funds that finance uh, Brazilian Tier 3, Tier 4, Tier 5 companies. And so the distress market uh, that has grown over the past five years have been grown uh, in a relevant part on these high yield bonds or loans or uh, debts uh, that have been uh, you know, provided to this type of companies. So it's a well-connected, particularly because Brazil um, which is not the case of, of, the, uh, of developing economies like the US, 
it has uh, uh, is, is used to charge higher interest rates uh, even for like tier uh, tier three or tier two companies. So it it is a sort of high yield bonds or high yield loans. But in Brazil, it tends to be um, a, a, a normal loan to a company that uh, is is somehow sometimes doing fine. So now that we understand the, the size of the market, what are the legal basics that U.S. investors should be aware of when considering investments in the Brazilian distress market? And how do Brazilian laws facilitate or pose challenges for foreign investors? When we, um, just like any other market of like a, a, a developing country, uh, we we put together or we tend to suggest put together a action plan. So we we um, we separate like okay, what do you need to look into uh, the target asset, and what do you need to look into uh, when you hold the asset until it is paid in case a non-performing loan, or in case you sell uh, if you acquire an asset specific asset. Uh, what you need to pay attention with respect to taxation and liquidity. So with respect to the target asset, um, some, some basics, uh, some basic, um, um, I would say, uh, diligence is to, okay, is this asset um, um, enforceable? Uh, is this, uh, can we confirm that uh, this asset exists? At the end of the day, or someone selling uh, asset that uh, is not uh, is not um, is, is does not exist uh, for if you in the future you wanted to enforce or claim the rights. Uh, is there any third party rights over that particular asset? Uh, another point of attention in in the assets. Um, what are the legal requirements? For you, for a foreign investor to acquire that uh, particular asset, is there some uh, local law, Brazilian law requirement with respect to assignment that or that uh, over the rights of that particular asset? Do you need to notify uh, the debtor? Do you need to make any registration? So this is also an important point. Um, so this is a, like basic due diligence on the target asset. And then, okay, I, I acquired that. If I acquired the asset, which action should I take uh, to hold it, the asset, until my, until I, I, for example, a non-performing loan, I'm uh, I'm able to um, get the repayment from the debtor. What type of action should I take to protect my rights? With respect to taxation, uh, a foreign investor when he invests into Brazilian uh, distressed asset, okay. If I'm acquiring this asset, is that in tax implication? Is that in tax implication if I hold this asset for a time, this asset for a specific time? And if I'm receiving the payment or if I'm selling this asset, what uh, what will be the taxation over it? So that's also an important point. And finally, if I want to sell this particular asset, is there a, a liquid market? Is there buyer available to buy the asset and for how much so these are like uh, uh, 
some key points on the target asset, holding the asset, uh, taxation, and at the time I want to exit from that uh, investment, what are, uh, you know, which point should I pay attention to? That's great to know. And also how flexible is the legal system in Brazil in accommodating various investment structures such as private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds? The Brazilian legal system for private equity, uh, venture capital, and funds are well-developed and uh, has a, uh, the, it has a history of uh, over 20 years. So uh, we have uh, billions of dollars invested into PE funds or VC funds or the other type of funds that we have in Brazil. For example, one major fund, uh, type of fund that uh, uh, tend to invest in distressed assets that we call PDICIS, uh, which is uh, a fund, a receivables fund, um, it has uh, if you take the, the the total size of committed and already invested um, funds, uh, already invested money into this type of funds, is over one hundred billion um, um, U.S. dollars. So just for this type of funds, we call it PGK, uh, which is a receivables fund dedicated to acquire performing and non-performing uh, receivables. So we have uh, a, a committed and, and already invested funds for over $100 billion. And then also we have the uh, equity funds dedicated to PE and VC, which, have, uh, which has also uh, billions of dollars already uh, of, um, of, of funds committed and or invested. So as, as a general understanding is an industry that uh, is well developed, uh, developed, tested in court, and uh, has been growing uh, year after year. So you go over the recent changes in, in Brazilian tax laws, especially related to foreign funds and how they impact the taxation of profits for foreign investors? Brazil is um, Brazilian tax system is known for being quite complicated, and um, and that's all the federal governments over the past twenty years have tried to uh, bring proposal of tax reforms um, to make it more simple for Brazilians and for foreign investors. So now uh, it's uh, has been approved the basic framework of uh, tax reform just uh, recently in 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 2020 end of 2023 and um, and in some side laws and one in particular that uh, particularly particular that has been um, um, you know uh, enacted in uh, the end of 2023 which is in december that uh, have uh, changed the taxation um, uh, for Brazilians investing uh, offshore, or for uh, foreign uh, or for non-residents in Brazil or for investors investing into Brazil in certain assets. 
But as a general understanding, um, the taxation of uh, non-residents, like U.S. investors in Brazil, is income tax at the rates of 15 percent. That's the, like the general rule. However, there are certain ex uh, exceptions. Um, these exceptions they um, refer to specific assets. For example, uh, there are certain certificates of agribusiness receivables that we call it CRAS, um, that they are exempted of uh, income tax for Brazilians and they are exempted for income tax for US investors or any other foreign investors. Um, certificates, uh, there's another one, it's a certificate of uh, real estate receivables, we call it CRIS, uh, which is also uh, uh, exempted from um, income tax. So if a foreign investor acquires or invests into this type of assets, the uh, taxation will be zero. There has been, um, with respect to uh, investment funds, there has been some um, change. We specifically, uh, with the equity investment funds, we call it FIPIS, which uh, now the taxation of capital gains have been uh, uh, reduced depending on the on the specific um, uh, situation, or maybe go to zero. So from 10 to zero, depend on the type of investment in the structure that this type of equity investment fund take. So as a you know summary of taxation, which is for this um, uh, podcast is, is uh, uh, given the limitation of time is, 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 is we cannot go over all the specifics, but general understanding is that the overall income tax rate for foreign investors is 15%, but there are some specific assets that might go to zero taxation. Yes, I have so many questions I could go on for hours, but um, I also wanted to know if there are any capital controls or restrictions on taking money out of Brazil that um, U.S. investors should be mindful of, and also any challenges related to currency hedging? Brazil has no uh, capital control or restrictions on the inflow outflow of uh, funds for over 30 years. This type of risk factor has even been deleted from uh, offering memorandums in the capital and the financial markets uh, for Brazilian companies raising funds uh, outside. So this type of uh, risk factor has been deleted from offering memorandums. What it means? It means that is not a risk factor anymore. And so um, there is no restrictions or capital control for the inflow outflow. What foreign investors should be mindful is that, okay, I'm investing to this particular distressed asset or special situations or alternative asset in Brazil. Um, should I register uh, my investment in Brazilian Central Bank? So most of, uh, of the investments require, require the registration of the investment to the Brazilian Central Bank. Or, okay, I'm acquiring this particular asset in Brazil. Should I register a fiscal uh, number, a tax number? Should I have a tax number with Brazilian authorities or not? 
There are some that require that there are others that do not. So it's more of a, a, a paying attention to the bureaucratic requirements, registration before Brazilian Central Bank and other authorities, then uh, capital controls. That's uh, So there is no capital control on taking money in or out of Brazil. And you already briefly mentioned this. Um, you mentioned the agribusiness receivables, but essentially wanted to know which sectors in Brazil are currently promising for um, the stress that investors, and if you can explain in a bit more detail, these financial instruments like CRI, CRAs, um, and how accessible they are to foreign investors. The Brazilian, uh, the foreign investors, when they come uh, to Brazil, especially if we think about over the past uh, five years and now, uh, what has been like a hot uh, sectors are, are like banking sectors, uh, banking sector, so non-performing loan is always a, a, a good uh, type of, of asset. And I'll tell you one particular, uh, particular data. In Brazil, uh, it is a World Bank and Brazilian Central Bank um, um, a chart where if you have a claim of $1 in the U.S., and you bring this claim uh, to a court in the US, you might recover on average 85 cents out of $1. In Brazil, the average over the past, uh, uh, I would say 20 years, is you recover out of $1, 18 cents. So there is a very big space for improvements. And what I talked in the first questions of uh, like labor reform, digitalization, new collateral instruments, new financial uh, instruments, they will uh, absolutely improve um, this uh, percent of recovery that we now face, which is with 18, 18 cents in a dollar. So uh, like banking, uh, non-performing non banking loans is one sector, uh, real estate, uh, has been a growing, uh, as, uh, 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 having growing attention from foreign investors because you have the asset, you have uh, if you if you need to enforce, then you have the asset itself there for you to to protect or mitigate your uh, liquid liquidity risk. Legal claims also a big uh, new uh, trend like tax claims. As I said before, Brazilian has a complex tax system. And because of that, companies, they go to courts and claim rights or credit against the Brazilian state, uh, municipality, and federal government. So these claims, they amount in billions of dollars nowadays because it's just becoming now the uh, uh, turning the attention of uh, local and foreign investors. Civil liabilities, uh, also now a big trend. Uh, another big trend is operating units of companies under chap the Brazilian Chapter 11. Like Brazil, uh, companies under judicial recovery, they, uh, most of the plans, they uh, provide for the sale of certain operating units of these companies so that the company can generate cash flow. The uh, foreign and local investors, they play, pay close attention to, to these opportunities 
because they are generally sold at a very uh, relevant discount. So I would say uh, banking sector, real estate, legal claims that divide into tax and civil liabilities, agribusiness is another uh, good area, and operating units of company, uh, companies under Chapter 11. Um, just exploring, as you, uh, you asked me about these uh, financial instruments like uh, CRIS or CRAS, which is in case of CRIS, is, uh, they are certificates of uh, real estate receivables. As we talked before, they are tax exempted, so there is no income tax on this type of receivables. And they are certificates that are issued um, based on receivables that the real estate, like developers or any other company in the real estate sector, they have in their business. So they, they became very popular. They are uh, tens of billions of dollars in, uh, in size, in industry size, because they, um, uh, a number of the Brazilian real estate companies, they are issuing this type of um, uh, uh, security uh, in order to finance their operations. And foreign investors can, yes, they can acquire this type of uh, uh, of uh, certificate uh, or this type of uh, uh, financial instrument, and they, if there is a default, they are able to access the collateral package or the receivables that uh, are the basis for the issuance of this type of uh, of certificate. The same thing happened with the agribusiness certificates, so what we call CRAS. The certificate of agribusiness receivables, um, they also rely on receivables generated from the agribusiness company's uh, uh, operations. And uh, so a foreign investor can acquire uh, directly this type of, um, of uh, securities. And if there is a default, they can go and access the underlying uh, receivable uh, for that particular offering. So uh, it's all is both uh, financial instruments are uh, uh, interest are interest uh, uh, assets that might be the foreign investor and particularly U.S. investors might be looking to if they want to access the Brazilian real estate sector or agribusiness sector. And you um, already mentioned the the. Uh, credit recovery potential. Um, also wanted to to understand a bit more about the investment amount potential for U.S. investors and also the timeline of recovery. Um, the average, at least from our experience as uh, legal counsel to foreign investors investing into the Brazilian distressed uh, market, the average um, has if you take an average, I would say between ten and fifty, between uh, ten and fifty million US dollars, but this amount can go up to one hundred. Uh, but the overall, I would say between ten and fifty million US dollars will be the range of uh, of investments. Um, I think that over the past, I would say two to three years. Which means uh, 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 what I'm saying is single investment. 
but but there are some U.S. investors in uh, uh, other other foreign investors from other jurisdictions that they make an initial ten million U.S. dollar investment, and as they get the local they get the knowledge of uh, uh, the experience or the taste of the of uh, of the market, and they see the potential, so they go and in, they increase the exposure. 20, 30, 40, 50, yeah, and, 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 and that goes on. So that's what I would say. Uh, it generally starts at $10 million. That can, there's no limitation. It can start at $1 million or $5 million. But the, we see that generally start at $10 million US dollars, but go up to $50 million, uh, um, not easily, but over time. Um, and and, and what, what is the other question? The timeline for the typical timeline for recovery. The typical timeline for recovery, it depends on the type of asset. For example, non-performing loans, uh, it depends. Okay, I'm acquiring a NPL that the bank or the fund that has that has sold uh, has been court for years trying to recover, but that the, those type of uh, debtors are uh, uh, you cannot locate them or locate the, their assets so that might take more more time but but the overall um, um, timeline it goes between one year to five years depending on the type of assets for example as I mentioned initially because of the, the improvements of digitalization the improvement in the collateral instruments, and uh, in the documentation, there's some uh, debtors when you go after them uh, out of court um, or in, 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 uh, in, um, through court procedures, they fear that they uh, will lose and interest will continue to be charged, especially defaulted interest continue to be charged, that they come for settlement at early stage. We have seen that uh, foreign and local investors, when they acquire NPLs, they count uh, very heavily on uh, the chance of recovery within a year uh, of the acquisition because of these improvements in, uh, uh, in the overall documentation of, 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 uh, of loans and, uh, and, and collateral instruments. But I'd say if the average would be between one year and uh, the average, not the average, but the range would be between one year and could go to uh, three to five years of the time of recovery for NPLs. Uh, when you talk about, uh, uh, when you acquire an asset that is uh, underpriced, then you're going to retrofit or you're going to, for example, operating unit that you acquire and you're going to uh, expand the business and then sell afterwards, then it's a matter of, uh, of, of uh, how markets will look into that particular asset and wants to acquire. But uh, these two type of investments, uh, one, operating units in uh, companies under Chapter 11 and um, real estate retrofit uh, have been a, a very big uh, part of uh, the new wave of investment in personal distressed uh, market. 
Interesting. And can you also elaborate a bit more on the type of collateral arrangements that are commonly used? Um, the typical transaction for in distressed uh, Brazilian market is uh, you have the typical assignment agreement and you need to pay attention to the requirements of the Brazilian law uh, to that particular assignment. What uh, are the what Brazilian law requires that you observe as a foreign investor for that particular asset. And then um, if you are if you're acquiring, for example, NPL that already also includes a collateral package that was originally provided by uh, the uh, the borrower. So um fiduciary lien agreement, like we call alienação fiduciária, which is a type of collateral that uh, transfer the ownership in fiducia uh, to the uh, creditor until the debtor pays uh, the full amount of the debt. This is a hot collateral instrument nowadays in Brazil because if the company files for Brazilian Chapter 11, this type of uh, collateral instrument is protected and out of uh, left out of the chapter 11 uh, procedure so the company has to pay the debt the debt um, secured by this type of collateral another type of good collateral is the assignment fiduciary assignment of uh, performed receivables or fiduciary assignment of other credit rights um, that depending on if it is performed already, performed already, it is left also outside of uh, Brazilian Chapter 11. So there are, I would say, fiduciary lien and fiduciary assignment uh, became the two uh, dear collateral structures in Brazil. But you will also have like the mortgage, uh, the pledge, this shoe. If there is a, a chapter 11, they are subject. So then the investor will become a secured creditor under uh, the, the chapter 11. And as we wrap up the conversation, also wanted to understand how important it is for foreign investors to collaborate with local partners or institutions when entering the, the Brazilian market and um, are there any legal intricacies that foreign investors might overlook without having local expertise? Foreign investors, they may enter into Brazil directly, sending money from US to Brazil. They can uh, invest through the investment offshore investment vehicles into Brazil, or they can set up their own Brazilian uh, investment vehicle or also they may um, uh, prefer to invest into a Brazilian fund and then the Brazilian fund manager will invest into, uh, the, uh, into the particular asset. What we have seen from educated and sophisticated US and other uh, foreign investors that have already invested in Brazil uh, over the years is that retaining local knowledge uh, of uh, a, a um, of some uh, of um, uh, a partner that has experience either from uh, credit experience 
due diligence experience, legal experience in the particular uh, asset will help the foreign investor to get the overall market intel, asset precipitation, if what you're paying for is the right amount, uh, due diligence, and liquidity strategies. So accessing maybe having a, a local partner uh, or invest jointly with a local investor in a particular uh, uh, asset might be helpful, especially for first-timers in the Brazilian market. These are great insights, Lucio. Thank you for going over the all the unique opportunities available in Brazil for distressed asset investors. Really appreciate your time. Maria, thank you very much and congrats for the uh, for the podcast and uh, I think uh, the Brazilian market given the size that it has uh is a market that US and foreign investors should definitely pay attention to in their uh coming investments in 2024 and so on. Thank you very much. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at Kano Health, Baiju's The We Company, Diamond Sports Group, Goal Air, and SVB Financial Group. Independent primary care physicians group Kano Health filed for Chapter 11 on February 4th to pursue a prearranged dual-track process for a standalone restructuring or an all-asset sale. A pre-petition marketing process failed to produce any actionable bids. At the first day hearing last Tuesday, Judge Karen B. Owens granted interim approval of a $150 million new money dip financing facility backstopped by the ad hoc group of first lien lenders, giving the debtors access to a $50 million initial draw. However, the judge sustained the U.S. trustee's objection to a 15% participation fee for the dip lenders upon entry of the interim order. Baiju's Alphas said at a first day hearing last week that its primary goal in Chapter 11 is to pursue fraudulent transfer litigation against Camshaft Capital Fund to recover $533 million. Baiju's Alpha is trying to locate the funds transferred to Camshaft which may have been subsequently transferred to a third party at the direction of the debtor's former parent company, according to counsel. Judge John Dorsey granted the limited relief requested by the debtor, including cash collateral at use up to $75,000. The court will consider approval of a $260 million senior secured multiple draw dip facility featuring a $20 million new money component from an ad hoc group of pre-petition lenders at a final hearing. WeWork has attracted a $200 million dip proposal from co-founder Adam Newman with the support of Third Point Management, according to press reports. The reports add that Newman urged WeWork to engage in an alternative restructuring proposal under which he would purchase the company. At a hearing last week, debtors' counsel said that cash collateral will not be sufficient to fund the trapped 11 cases and that WeWork is now contemplating dip financing and a rights offering that would be used to repay the loan. WeWork's analysis of the trapped 11 plan filed last weekend estimates that the debtors face a potential new money need that could reach $400 million because of continued cash burn and bankruptcy exit costs if lease negotiated. A new ad hoc group of descending lenders represented by Schulte, Roth, and Zabel has called on the Diamond Sports Group debtors to halt the ongoing syndication of their proposed $450 million dip facility. The group argues that the court should require the debtors to consider a superior alternative dip proposal from the descending lenders, which the group says would provide over $100 million of additional value to second lien creditors and unsecured note holders. The DSU debtors disclosed a deal last week with Major League Baseball that would end one of the key disputes in the Chapter 11 cases. To resolve Major League Baseball's motion to compel assumption or rejection of telecast rights agreements, or TRAs, between the debtors' regional sports networks and 12 Major League Baseball clubs, the debtors agreed to pay full contractual rights fees to the clubs and to not seek to reject any of the TRAs through the end of the 2024 MLB season. 
Ahead of the Gaulinus Arias Intelligentes debtor's final dip hearing on February 15th, Rear published analysis of potential disputes over collateral valuation in the pre-petition Arbor transaction that gave rise to the Gold 2028 notes. Last Thursday, the debtors moved for discovery from competitor Latam Airlines, accusing Chilean Carrier of a coordinated campaign to poach Gulf's aircraft, lessers, and pilots. SVB Financial Group filed a disclosure statement for its plan of reorganization last Wednesday. The plan and DS track debtors' restructuring support agreement with the Davis Polk represented ad hoc group of senior note holders, specifically the RSA's NUCO and liquidating trust construct. Pursuant to the plan, a new company would hold 100% of the equity interest in the debtor and certain subsidiaries, while retained causes of action, investment securities, and other assets would be transferred to a liquidating trust. These liquidating trust assets would potentially include the debtor's claims against the Federal Deposit Insurance Corps to rec- recover approximately $1.93 billion of account funds formerly held at Silicon Valley Bank. RDOT Group, GoTo Group, Robert Shaw, Ocean Point Terminals, formerly known as Lime Tree Bay Terminals, Curia Global, Sinclair Broadcast Group, and Alkagen run out this week's crop of near-term restructurings and refinancings and new advisor mandates. RDOT Group faces $3.2 billion in secured debt maturities in 2025 and 2026, starting with $700 million due in April 2025, which may be challenging to refinance because of the company's leverage, lack of cash flow, and $2.3 billion in 2027 unsecured debt maturities. According to analysis by REARG, RDOG could potentially use its equity ownership in RDOG metal packaging to bridge a refinancing gap, although there's likely not enough value there to entirely close the loop. Last week, GoTo Group launched a debt exchange offer open to all its existing term loans and its 5.5% senior secured notes due 2027, pursuant to an agreement with the majority of holders of its term loans and notes. All exchange participants will receive new term loans or new notes as applicable, with an improved security position, tighter covenants, and other restrictions. Robert Shaw is headed toward a potential debt restructuring, either a Chapter 11 or an out-of-court deal, according to sources, as the company's distress is overlaid by arguably the most eye-opening creditor-on-creditor violence in recent memory. Tight liquidity, elevated leverage, negative cash flows, and near-term debt maturities have been haunting Robert Shaw. Ed market demand softness as a result of the war in Ukraine and slowing housing markets in the United States have been pressuring the top line, and debt service payments have been weighing on cash flow generation. Ocean Point Terminals, formerly known as Lime Tree Bay Terminals, announced on January 17th that it had ceased amend and extend discussions with lenders and instead entered into a non-binding term sheet with a third-party lender that will provide $490 million of funding. The proceeds of the new money will be used to pay off the company's L plus 400 BIPs term loan and B in full, which matures on February 15th, the sources said. Curia Global recently obtained a $125 million non-recourse facility, maturing in 2029, backed by accounts receivable as part of a liability management exercise, including an asset drop-down, according to sources. KKR, an existing investor in Curia, provided a loan, which was used to repay a previous bank facility set to mature in November 2025, and contribute additional liquidity for the contract development and manufacturing organization owned by Carlisle and GTCR. An ad hoc group of lenders to Sinclair Broadcast Group is organized with Millbank as counsel and Perla Weinberg Partners as financial advisor, according to sources. The mobilization came as Diamond Sports Group seeks to emerge from bankruptcy as a going concern, and the tennis channel, which was moved away from the restricted group, may be monetized. Diamond Sports RSA includes a $495 million settlement payment from its parent Sinclair to resolve a $1.5 billion fraudulent transfer lawsuit, which Sinclair lenders may need to evaluate, the sources said. Clearly, Capital Group-backed Alcagen is being advised by Kirkland Ellis' legal advisor ahead of the Dow-based company's 2025 term loan maturity, according to sources. An ad hoc group of lenders also working with Lazard as financial advisors. The group is represented by Milbank. 
Tapper's stories this week included taking both roads to recovery, history and future of double-dip transactions, FOMC maintains EFFR levels, China Evergrande's winding up creates more questions than answers, European prime market extends hot start to 2024, Jackson Walker withdraws representation of 4E brands, plan agent position statement says any net recovery from disgorge legal fees will go to Gux. Now here's Kate Thomas from New York with the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas, and here are a few highlights from the upcoming week. A longer schedule of the week's events, including earnings, can be found on the Rear website under America's Week Ahead. On Monday, the trial on Wesco and Cora's 2022 up-tier exchange transaction resumes. The note holders challenging the transaction say it breached their indentures and violated their sacred rights because it left their notes virtually worthless when a subset of lenders up-tiered their unsecured notes for no consideration. The trial will likely last through the February 27th confirmation hearing and March 1st dip financing expiration. The proposed plan assumes the validity of the transaction, and the debtors have said that they intend to push forward with confirmation due to severe liquidity issues. At the trial last week, Judge Marvin Isker questioned whether the debtors should include a plan toggle to account for the chance they do not prevail at trial. Jumping to Wednesday, which is Valentine's Day, by the way. The Genesis Global debtors are hoping that Judge Sean Lane falls in love with their Chapter Chapter 11 plan, settlements with the SEC and the New York Attorney General, and the request to sell off $1.6 billion of grayscale trust assets. Sorry, that was a bad joke. Anyway, the debtors face steep opposition from several parties, so they may need the help of Cupid to get to confirmation. Again, sorry. These objections focus on the plan release provisions and the proper valuation date of digital assets under the plan distribution principles. On Friday, parent DCG requested a status conference with Judge Lane, accusing Genesis of attempting to rig the confirmation hearing by pushing through these settlements on shortened notice. Instant Brands also has planned confirmation hearing on Thursday. Under the plan, the debtors would reorganize the housewares business line, equitizing over $390 million of Class Three pre-petition term loan claims. This plan structure was prompted when, last year, regulatory roadblocks prevented the sale of the housewares line. The debtors, however, now face plan objections and an adversary proceeding from suppliers related to indemnity claims in connection with last year's sale of their appliance business. Rite Aid closes out the week on Friday by seeking approval of its disclosure statement. The debtors have been in mediation over plan terms. According to the disclosure statement approval motion filed earlier this month, the proposed plan contemplates either restructuring or senior secured noteholders would receive equity in the reorganized business or an alternative sale transaction to a third party or the senior secured note holders. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary View and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Take care and see you all next week.